Modi kai, Modi order. Good kai makes you well. E nei iwi o te motu nau mai hoki mai anō ki te whare a te ahikā, ko maraia rakuraku ahau. Ko Justin Maria ahau, welcome to Te Ahikā, our weekly kaupapa Māori programme, giving you insight into things Māori on Radio New Zealand National. It seems at some stage or other we've all spent time learning how to cook. It was an old flatmate, my mum, kia ora mum, and my two nannies that taught me how to cook all those years ago. Actually, I used to be so hoha learning how to garden, preserve and bake that it's only been now I appreciate all the time and effort they put into teaching me. And I remember my mum teaching me how not to overneed a prawa paki or cartwheel bread because, well... It ended up being so hard and crunchy that you could break a tooth on it instead of being nice and fluffy inside. Man, what our whanau had to put up with. Sounds a bit like my doughboys, Justine. Hard as rocks or wet as sand. Mmm, nice. And I bet this fella's doughboys are delicious as that's Māori chef Pete Petey, whose memories of cooking are similar to ours. He's just better at it. I think I remember I had a pheasant on the, on the table too and the... It was a small little piece of meat in it and my father was out working all day, you know, and he's starving and he comes home and there's this little <laughs> pheasant thigh on top of a potato mash and, uh, and he's looking at it and going, oh. you know, a man that's used to big roast and ball up yeah. and now he's got this fine dining cuisine meal sitting in front of him and you see him nibbling away at it. Mm, quite nice, that sounds quite nice. And then out comes a, a peanut butter and jam sandwich afterwards just to pull him up. He's, <laughs> he's still hungry. <laughs> Host of Māori Television's Kai Time on the Road, Māori chef Pete Petey, will be joining us a little later on. Naitahu history lecturer Te Maire Taupe isn't impressed by the 2008 publication written by Paul Moon that supposedly separates the myth from the reality of traditional Māori cannibalism. He explains why in our review segment, Te Wete Wete. No one's denying it, but I think Paul finds, he wants to explain it, he thinks this practice needs ex- explanation. You know, instead of looking in, you know, the backyard of the Western world where, you know, there's genocide, uh, concentration camps, untold forms of torture in medieval society, he doesn't want to deal with that. He deals with our um, particular practice. And he um, uh, he goes through the material, but it's not Māori material. It's largely Western material, and it's a t- particular type of primary material, it's white western primary material. There, there's actually no Māori accounts primary sources. Te mairi tau. We'll hear more from him after more of my adventures up the Huanganui River with Hari Benavides and Harvey Bell. I'm Justin Murray. I'm Maraia Rakaraku. Sit back, relax, because you're with Te Ahikā for the next hour. Nā reire tewe, kia mau te rongo. In 2009, Moriko Station, Whanganui, was named a finalist in the beef and sheep farming category of the premier Māori farming trophy, the Ahu Whenua Cup. And last week, we left Mariah and her travelling companions, Hari Benavides and Harvey Bell, as they arrived at the station and were attempting to drive up a hill. Before we see how they got on, Mariah, remind me of what you were up to up the river. Well, Justine, I was going to have a jack. See how the 5,500 hectare farm operates, its involvement in the community, and what the emotional connection is for its workers. And you know what? I wasn't disappointed. It was a wicked day. It's OK going up here. It's coming down here. It's a bit of a yeah, bugger. Yeah, dangerous. And, and the thing is, we got caught because everybody came up here without raincoats. Um, it didn't really look like rain. Or that was a possibility. Down the bottom, I don't think they've got 
don't think across there is that that is up there. Uh, I don't think that I think the gully is the boundary. God, this is pretty idyllic, isn't it? Yeah. Until you need something, your internet breaks down and the power goes off. Yeah, and then it's just rugged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that gets really old. Yeah, it's like, damn. <laughs> so here, they take nothing of going. I'm probably going to walk there. Yeah. Some people go to walk there every day. For work? Yeah. When you come to Monaco, it's a long drive and I always think, oh God, I've got to drive down there because it's, when I come in from the top, it's an hour and a half for me from home and it's down, you know, the windy road and metal and what have you. But once I get here, it's always well worth the drive because this place has such a lovely feeling. It just envelops you when you're on it. And, and I just love Moriko because there's new things to discover each journey that you make here. The special thing, I think, is that you know, every time we come here and we come with shareholders and everything, we've all got an ancestral connection with this place. And I think that's what makes it special. And you know, we've instituted, Harry instituted about three years ago, shareholder visits. And we have, have a couple a year. And we've had shareholders on here, you know, oh, probably at least half a dozen times over the last sort of half, three years. And they just love it because they've never been allowed on the place before. One of our board members who lived down in Ranana, she'd never been past the wall shed. Um, Why were they never allowed on? It was just the culture around the table, the, the governance table. Um, they now, thought the people would inter want to interfere, but they don't. They know the rules. So, Harvey, what's your ancestral connection to Murikai? My great-grandmother was a, was a shareholder, and she's buried at Ranana to the bottom of Murikai Road. Her name was um, Hohi Matane, or Hohi Manson, and her husband... Um, oh, her, sec her first husband was killed at Motua, and uh, she married a, um, an Orkney man, my great-grandfather. A Pākehā. Um, uh, Stuart Manson, and he had, he had a store in Wanganui, and he had a store at Pipariki, and he had a store at uh, Hihitahi, somewhere we've never quite worked out uh, where it was on the number one highway. So that's my connection. Most of the shareholders are from here. Uh, the, the, most of the shareholders have a connection to the river because, uh, you know, our ownership was in all of the Muriko blocks, Ngarako Whakarara blocks, and so there's, there is a connection that goes way back. And this is a, when we instituted the um, shareholder visits where they came out and they looked, because we were going to be spending a great deal of money on the infrastructure, we, we knew that it would be easier to let them see it rather than you talk about the money that was being spent at an AGM. If they see it, they can get an understanding of what is going on and the vastness or the, the, the scale of the projects that were happening. We built um, a night pen which houses now uh, overnight pen for two and a half thousand head of sheep. Now when you see it, it's massive. And the cost, they can understand because they can see the size of it. The water scheme that we put in was about $200,000. Now, we pump water up to a holding tank, and then that is gravity fed out six kilometres away, and we still haven't finished that yet. We're still adding on to it um, more and more troughs. So they can see and understand how and where the money is being spent rather than just reading it in an annual report. So that was part of the reason that we invited them up here to come and be a part of it, but also to take ownership of everything that was happening on Mordico because if they don't own it, they're not, going, they're, going, they're not going to know about it. They're not going to have the same feeling. And so when they started coming... It was a slow job. The first visit, we had to drag along our own family members virtually. And then the second one, we got a few more. And then the third one, it was more and more. But the people who started coming um, first up wanted to come again and again and again. So it got to the point where we weren't actually getting a lot of new people coming because the ones who had been before wanted to see what else had been done. And the great success of all of that is that they talk about the work that has been done so that when we would go out on a farm visit 
we actually really don't need to talk about it because these shareholders can tell the others what has gone on and what are the development is and everything else because they know. I mean, the sorts of rationale that, that for investment, this wall shed over here, for example, um, there, it was a two-day exercise getting all the sheep for shearing across to um, the main wool shed. So, um, and it's 15 kilometres. So you've got three, four men out of commission for two days. You've got the uh, strain on stresses and strains on the sheep um, going that 15k because it was it was um, uh, half of it down to um, Ranana and then the next day they would go up. So we four days and 30 kilometres of, of, of um, uh, sheep movement was eliminated by the, by the um, uh, construction of this wool shed. And those are the sorts of things we've done. We had, about, we had over 150 people, most of them our shareholders, come to the shareholder opening. And they understood exactly why we'd spent the money. It was the thick end of $200,000. But they could see what the rationale was, and there's no criticism. And, I mean, this is the thing, that, that, that people who um, mouth off in ignorance at, at, at AGMs, that doesn't happen anymore because they always know somebody um, who's been up on the visits and so they get on the phone and, and they find out the, you know, what the situation is before they come to the meetings. And, I mean, it's, it's been a huge success. And just the, the, the feeling that people get by being included. I mean, we, it's, the showcasing is not just telling them what we're doing. There's actual active dialogue with the shareholders when they're here. And if anybody's got any ideas, you know, would you like to consider this? Why haven't you considered that? Those things are all up to for debate. And any shareholder can go and talk talk to any of our staff on a one-to-one -one basis. We don't keep the staff at, at um, arm's length so that uh, shareholders can't interact with them. They can take the staff away and say, look, tell me what really is going on on the station. We don't mind because we know what's going on. Now, you've told me that Moriko contributes to the community itself through the school. What about on a wider scale in terms of its uh, contribution to Te Ao Māori? We've got the Monganui Trust, um, which is the oldest um, trust uh, um, that's associated with delivery to, to Māori, a charitable trust. Uh, in 1965, um, they got permission to be able to hold unclaimed dividends, and the interest from those unclaimed dividends uh, goes to charitable purposes. So we have an income that has been around about $100,000 a year. Now, with interest rates down, it's going to be sort of seventy or $80,000 a year. But so in terms of scholarships, um, and uh, grants for various activities, uh, Marae grants, come out to a housing grants, those sorts of things. We're distributing somewhere in the region of, of, of sixty to seventy thousand dollars a year. So that directly goes to descendants of Whanganui. No, it goes to the descendants of owners. There is for owners and their descendants only. And it can be for the wider community in the sense that our, <clears throat> like when they had the River Queen uh, premiere in Wanganui, the Wanganui Trust was one of the sponsors and what happened there was that we asked for a special screening the night before the premiere for 420 of our shareholders who turned up, they were all on time, they were all well dressed and well behaved and I think they enjoyed feeling special and a part of it that they were able to be there and see it before everybody else, the movie. So those are the kinds of things that talks about our people and shows our people in a good light. What is interesting, it makes a lie of uh, any thought that Maori can't remember to bring things. We sent out tickets, people applied for tickets, we sent out tickets, we said only, the only way you can get in to see this film is if you bring your ticket. There wasn't one person out of 450 who did not come with their ticket. A shift from within the confines of the four-wheel drive to standing outside and enjoying the view of Muriko Station led myself and Hari Benavides to a more philosophical corridor. And, and I mean, I grew up with my grandparents, and my grandfather was a great advocate of people getting back onto their land. He got all his own family, his nieces and nephews, to come back on their land. So I grew up hearing him and my grandmother talking about land issues that, that pertain to our family. So I was very much aware, and some of my cousins, the same age as me and older, were very much aware of all the land issues that happened to us and to other people. And um, so I think all the things that I've done in my life, like 
you know, living and working in America and going overseas, and, and, and that it comes back to this. This is what my life is about. Putting into practice, I suppose, what I've been taught. And it was not just, you know, one year or two years. I continued on after they died, and I was very fortunate that when I was, you know, 18, um, I went out and talked to people and just used to ask them, you know, about life. And I was doing with a, an old boyfriend of mine, I was researching um, Māori recipes. So I went out and spoke to people. And I got entree into their homes and they would talk to me, not because of me, but because of who my grandparents were. They always said, come in there, come in. And I think a lot of the time some of them might have been now, when you look back, lonely. So they had somebody to talk to and somebody who was listening and writing down things all the time about what they were saying. Mm. And so all of those things you, you breathe in and a lot of things you take in by osmosis, but you remember them, they come back at certain times. I think it's in our <coughs> fibre or our being some smell or a sound triggers it and you remember something. I mean, I remember some things that completely never thought about since the day they were said, so, you know. So in a way, do you think your grandparents were grooming you for the role that you now have as a chairperson of the Moriko Nui Station? I don't think they were grooming me for the role of Moriko. No, not, not there, necessarily, but I think they were, I was very fortunate to have been brought up by them and have learnt all of these things. I certainly think they were uh, teaching me by everybody else, by being there, by hearing what they were talking about, uh, particularly about our land issues and the land that was taken from them and taken from, you know, our great-grandfather on the Public Works Act and, and issues like that and how Māori had been cheated. I mean, my grandfather went back to farm there his farm in Taihapere about 1922 because the lease on their on old Ropi that was his father's land had come due the it was due to be rolled over for another 21 years and our grandfather took on the farm when they got it back it was a one 500 acre paddock the Pakeha leaseholder had done nothing he'd taken everything out of it and put nothing back in so Kuro had an agreement with one of the uh, Pakeha run holders who financed him and he said I will give you the money to be able to stock your farm and do up all your fences you have to allow me the grazing so he he grazed on Kuro's property on the farm and that was all done on a handshake now without that man our grandfather would never have been able to farm his own land why? Because the banks wouldn't lend to him. There was no institution that would lend Māori's money. And I'm not talking about ones with communal ownership, I'm talking about individual owners, simply because they were Māori. And when I hear people say that Māori were too lazy to farm their land or do anything with their land, it makes my blood boil, because that's not always the case. In some cases, like Koro, they weren't given the opportunity to get the finance to be able to farm their property. It was as recent as the 1960s that was going on. Kia ora, Harvey Benavides and Harvey Bell of Moriko Nui Incorporation, the governance body responsible for Moriko Station in Whanganui. Ngā mihi kia kōrua. Now, at our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash tiahika, you'll see photos of Moriko Station. Click through and you'll see there's a couple of other photo galleries there as well. In the age of global positioning systems and other flash navigational tools, it's easy to rely so much on technology that we don't trust what our eyes see. Yet, back in the day, and we're talking pre-European times, Māori had no option but to use them to read the landscape or even the ocean, Justine. I mean, despite some popularly held mythology or primary school lessons, we didn't float here accidentally. Aye, that's right. As Waka traversed Mwananuiakiwa, the Pacific Ocean, their navigators read the stars, ocean currents and birds to determine their progress and where they were in terms of vicinity to landmass. Of course, those skills were passed down from generation to generation as Mwananuiakiwa became a virtual highway of Waka moving back and forth. Makes sense then that 
as those travellers married into the people already here that those skills would translate to land-bound activities like hunting in the bush or fishing in the sea. Let's head back to Wanganui, Muri Coast Station, where I experienced what has been one of my highlights of 2009. This is amazing. Do you need me to open it? You were on the ridge over there. <gasps> I'll have to show you both of this. The reason that the I'm little here. round bush. The little round bush. In front of us. Yeah. Jimmy Edmonds, one of the trustees of Murikainui Incorporation and local boy, oh, yeah, yeah. explains the significance of some of the landmarks. Yeah. Did you go up on the hill, yeah. Harvey? Yeah. You're on the, on the green knob down there. Just where that track goes around, you're up on there. Wow, we were up over there! Yeah, that's yeah. where you took the photo. Oh my goodness! Gosh, this is humongous. Mokonui side. And the reason I brought you up here is because you're going to have to see the photos because when you stand at that post over there and you look out to your left, you see the three mountains. <gasps> and then when you look out to your right over here, you see Taranaki. Tamaki. But that's on a clear day. Right, I'm going to just get out and have a look though. There's one a month. So I have just taken a ride from a rhino. Uh, I've been sitting in the front and I'm now standing on a hill looking out and as far as I can see from here is the size of Moriko Station and this is amazing. And on a clear day you can stand at this point and you can see in one direction Ruapehu, Naruhui and Tongariro and in the other direction you can see Mount Taranaki, but this really is quite awe-inspiring, actually. That maunga in the middle, or that hill in the middle? Yeah. Called Tawakira. A lot of the surveying around Parapara was off that trig. Using the maunga there? Yeah, Tawakira. They call it the fishing sentinel. When you're out at sea and you're looking for the mouth of the Wanganui River, you look for that? Yeah, sometimes our manga is covered, but you either go up coast or down coast till you can see it. Then you head straight for it, bang, right in the mouth of the river. Look at that, eh? Our old people knew those things. Even when they used to go across out to the Hapuka grounds and all those things, go across to the South Island. Um, you had to get away back, it wasn't always fine when you came home. But that's what they look for, whether they went to Taranaki and rode back down. Oh, it's Tawakira, head straight for it. That's a little trick there. There's a block of, of native bush in that that old people are wondering what the hang to do with it, so they put it into the Wanganui Trust. It, uh, and, and of course, they, um, uh, the committee, or the Muriko committee, looks after the Wanganui Trust. And what's that area called? Oh, that block's called Matomoana, over there. So that's what we're looking at over there? Yeah. yeah. So is it's it In the middle bridge? of nowhere, we think this is nowhere, that is nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go up that one horse road, it's like this. That's yeah, horrible, isn't it? <laughs> so Jimmy, so... The, the other side of the skyline is the Waitotara River. It's just another side of the skyline, and the other side of... Uh, Matai Moana is the, Waik, is the um, Waitotara River. The old people used to go up there and walk over the hill to this river. That's how we so deeply uh, relate it. Similar to Waimana and all up in there. They were our walking areas. Uh, you can't see it. There's another one through there. See how low it goes? And this stream down here, just down in front of us, is another one also. It goes from Rānana, head north towards Raitihi and up into the... So basically what you're doing, Jimmy, is you're reading the land, which is yeah. what... You're... I, what I can't understand, we can see it now when there's no bush on it. How could they see it with bush on it? Mm, true. That's what I'm saying, even about that. When you're talking about our maunga, what maunga is that? Oh, Ruapitu. Gosh, that's how close we are. Yeah. Damn. Uh, and like Koro was saying, between that maunga and that one over there, there's no marae, uncanny as it may sound. 
I don't know if that's for whatever reason or because of the stories we say about it, how Taranaki was over there, Nakahui Monga. And then he, they had a little bit of a um, discussion. <laughs> All the other Mongas went north. Mm. And Taranaki stayed. Taranaki came down, he formed this awa down here in one story, formed the Whanganui River. Got to Whanganui, still couldn't see his beloved Pianga, so he moved around till he could see her. That's the kōrero we. That's the kōrero. Ah. Mangohe, the stream down here. It was another one of our old walkways into the central North Island. So you did a lot of walking, your old people. I mean, all our old people did. Yeah. Well, down here... But was there a reason to be nomadic for the old people from yeah, here? Yeah, We just can't quite see it. But up around Ohakuni, they call it the high country. And the manu and everything else um, were at their best at different times of the year from down here. Like the ika, like the tuna and all that sort of thing. So, as good as these places are, they couldn't sustain you with the, the same type of kai, tall months. So you had to go to other areas or preserve them, which is what our people did. Jimmy Edmonds explaining the significance different landmarks had for his people. Pretty neat, all right. Even where I'm from, Justine, when you stand at the fence line at the pa in Monopohasu and look towards the horizon, there's a place you can see that we call Motifasero, and it's a halfway point between Te Waimana and Monopohasu. So, just like Jimmy Edmonds, your people used a marked point in the land, which is an example of how time was measured. Cool, eh? Pretty cool, all right. Just like when they sailed across the Pacific Ocean. You're listening to Tiaika, Radio National. New Zealand has a long tradition of homegrown cooking shows like Alison Holst, Hudson and Hall and Des Britain. So cooking and everything around it is very much a part of our makeup in this country and especially if you're Māori. Cultivating crops, smoking meat like mako, Cooking corn and hot steam pools have all been traditional means of gathering and cooking kai. And then there's the hangi. That's the cooking of food in the ground. Veggies like pumpkin, potatoes, carrots, kumara and chicken and pork meat. They're usually covered in muslin cloth, put in baskets, which is then placed in a pit, filled with hot stones. And then it's covered with damp potato sacks. That's then covered in dirt, more rocks, and it's cooked roughly for around four hours. Or there's the hearty way of just heading into the bush and hunting or to the moana or sea to fish and gather seafood. Which is something that Pete Petey has been doing for ages. And now most of Aotearoa has seen him in action through the TV series on Māori television, Kai Time on the Road. If you've never seen the show, it features Pete Petey cruising around different parts of Aotearoa, getting alongside the locals in different towns and cooking up a meal. Justine visited Maui Productions in Rotorua, they're the producers of Kaitam on the Road, where she hooked up with Pete Peetsy. Uh, tēnā koe, uh, ko Matawhaura te maunga, ko Kaituna te awa, um, ko Rotoiti te moana, uh, ko Ngāti Pikeao te hapu, uh, ko Pira Peeti tōku ingoa. Uh, tēnā koe, <laughs> nō maro mai ki Rotorua nui a kahu matamomoi. Is this where you're from, um, Peter? I, I live out in a uh, small little village, uh, Paradise, <laughs> Mauria. <laughs> Just on the other side of Lake Rotorua, in between uh, Lake Rotorua and uh, Lake Rotiti. You have to pass it when you're coming through Tauranga Tupuke Way, so you I, come through I, there. So you come through that um, beautiful uh, scenic paradise. So, Ngāti um, Pikeao turf. Oh, yeah, Ngāti Pikeao, of course. <laughs> Rotorua, born and bred. I, I, I brought up here by, by my um, whanau and uh, love it. It's central. It's um, plenty of kai around. Oh, no Plenty doubt. of kai. You've got the lakes, you've got the bush, the rivers, the creeks, and then just, uh, I mean, half an hour east, then you've got the sea. Kai moana. Kaimoana So, um, Peter, can we talk about um, siblings, you know, um, your, your family, your upbringing um, in Maori? Uh, I have a uh, younger brother and younger sister, so I'm the oldest, so... Uh, I got all the, um, what do you call it, um, treatment. <laughs> <laughs> the hand-me-downs. Yeah, the hand-me-downs just to uh, keep things um, in order. Um, but um, really enjoyed uh, my life, my upbringing. Um, I took on the, 
I would say the art of cooking at a young age. When I was at primary school, taught I used to by watch. Your I, always, eh? It always, always seems to be the case. You know, you get taught by the mother. Um, I have seen my father put down a couple of hangis and hit, but um, I have seen him fall asleep on one hangi <laughs> under the uh, tree and forgot about it. So uh, you can imagine what uh, my mother was uh, <laughs> wishing him <laughs> during that Christmas period. Um, but yes, yeah, she um, prepared a lot of um, baking goods like cakes and biscuits and also, you know, you have your main dinners like the roasts and the boil-ups and chow mains and they always seem to have that special knack it's that touch the mother's cooking that sweetens up the food um you know i can do the same uh, i can cook the same but i don't think it ever will taste the same maybe because i've cooked it uh it's nice when i taste other people's meals i never complain at all about anybody else's meal um just eat um, but i do get a few um, helpful tips from other recipes and that from um, other meals that people prepare and that helps me too with the uh, with kai time on the road. So you just fill your kete with the, bits and pieces. Knowledge, of... fill the kete with knowledge, and don't be you know don't be um, afraid of that either. Uh, even though I do know the basics in cooking and that, I love taking in other tips and advice from other people who know how to cook as well. What's some of the recipes that you remember your mum cooking? Making? Lamingtons. Lamingtons. Yep, I'm a sweet too, so I don't smoke. You know, um, so yeah. I like. I replace that with lollies and cakes and um, any type of dessert. Uh, I, throughout my cooking career, my first job was the cold larder section, and I also took on desserts. Can you explain the cold larder section? Cold larder section is like um, you get you have to deal with the entrees, that the little appetizers that go out before your main meals. Mm. Um, you could have hors d'oeuvres. Little nibbles, party party nibbles. Um, you start making stuff like um, Caesar salads, you know, all, all types of salads. Little nibbles, it's little teasers before you start hitting your main course. Oh. And also um, the dessert section sort of comes into play along that line as well. You sort of get to do a bit of both. And I prepared at um, Okawa Bay, which was back home there, when I took on my apprenticeship, I prepared five desserts every night, different desserts. So you familiarise yourself with the art of baking and creating all these wonderful sweets. Mm, lovely. So what began for you as, you know, mum making lamingtons eventually became, you know, you creating really lovely puddings or desserts? Yep. Yeah, you still go to the cookbook, you know, you go, go to the cookbook to learn. Yeah, Edmunds is a winner. Um, but it's all about going through those recipes and then adding your own spice, your own flair, your own flavour, just to create your own recipe. Um, but stick to the basics. Go go with the the basics of making a sponge or or creating a simple steam pudding. Stick with the basics first. Once you master the basics, then branch out. So, Peter, then how did um, cooking ultimately become part of your life? Where did you start? You touched on it briefly before. Uh, I guess for me, I remember the days back at primary is, is um, preparing some sweets and that. Uh, I sort of intermediate, I took on all the cooking classes, of course, home economics. And and the reason being is that um, most of the time that we cooked was just before lunch and we had a nice lunch oh, after yeah. we finished that particular class. And I used to double my ingredients so that the cake will rise even more <laughs> and I'll get top marks and the, and... People didn't know that I used to double the ingredients. Yeah, you know? I mean, we always double the ingredients because you get more. I remember yeah, when we qu- made ice quantity cream. Quantity is best. Yeah, yeah, quantity. <laughs> Especially when you're intermediate. Oh, and quality. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, it's got to look like a nice, whatever we made it, it came out really well. Scones and Chelsea buns and, you know, ghettos and banana cakes and obviously back to those sweets again. You know, fast forward a bit, um, Peter, you, you obviously became a professional. Yes, um, I sort of started cooking game meat um, at an early age only because I took on hunting, fishing, hunting and all those, gathering the kai, uh, probably about during intermediate because I I sort of started to learn about fishing. Can you tell me about your first hunting experience? Um, First hunting experience, uh, I was shooting at rabbits and I always sort of learned that, you know, if you're going to... um, take a life of, a, of an animal then, then at least try it and cook it and I used to um, shoot a lot of rabbits 
and skin them out and then bring them home and casserole them and can be a bit chewy at times if you don't know how to cook it properly but again that was all learning curve and i used to cook it for dad and mum and they used to look at it and go hmm i'm eating rabbit when we've got a mutton sitting in the fridge or what <laughs> <laughs> but oh well we better and uh, uh just try our he's son's cooking hard yeah, he's worked hard he's gone out and hunted and he's prepared it and cooked it up and so we better sort of and i see them chewing away there and i think i remember i had a pheasant on the on the table too and uh was a small little piece of meat in it and my father was out working all day you know and he's starving and he comes home and there's this little <laughs> pheasant thigh on top of a potato mash and uh, and he's looking at it and he's going oh. <laughs> you know a man that's used to big roast and boil up yeah. and now he's got this fine dining cuisine meal sitting in front of him and you see him nibbling away at it and I'm, mm, quite nice that sounds quite nice and then out comes a, a peanut butter and jam sandwich afterwards just to pull him up. He's, <laughs> He's still hungry. <laughs> so, Peter, when you when you hunt, when you hunt for kai, for kai moana, for um, game or, or pigs, you know, do you have um, your own sense of, own way of doing it? Like, is there some sort of... Yeah, for sure. You know, how, yep. how do you... I think I think as a chef, you become quite fussy um, because you that's how you were taught throughout the years and, and you just every you know you, you pick up tips all the way like I was saying and I like teaching it to, to my boys and, and to other hunters and that um, especially ones who are just taking it up um, just learning I try and teach them some simple um, hygiene methods of preparing game summertime if you if you get a pig or deer you pretty much got to get into that chiller because of the heat yeah. um, dressing it out properly so that it doesn't um, go off type thing. You got to you know open it all up so the air circul- circulates throughout the animal, um, and hanging it, all that sort of stuff. It all comes into play, but it all takes time. Um, some people won't pick that up unless something wrong happens to the animal. Um, you know, it may go off due to leaving it on the back of the truck in the heat, mm-hmm. and they go, oh, why did that go off? Oh, I know why. Or Hanging it out in the in the open at night when the moon's up because the moon can actually make it go off as well. Really, ultraviolet rays—that's a no-no. It'll go green. So all those—I've I've learned by mistakes, though. Hey, eh? that's the way. That's the way that some people will yeah. take it up is, is to learn by mistakes. And once you've learned, you'll never do it again. You know, you never want to waste kai at all. And if you are going to gather the kai, then it needs to be treated properly. Needs to be prepared properly. Um, even I go, I use every little bit of meat on the on the animal, but I'm like I say, I'm quite fussy. Like at home, I like to be the only one to try and carve it up, and because I know there won't be any hair or any gristle <laughs> on it, eh, you know, and it's clean and no dirt or anything. Not <laughs> like I've seen some rough skinny, eh? Oh, I've seen some rough. And I go, oh, take over, mate. I'll take over. I'll finish it, you know, and. Even to the point of, of cutting it into steaks or roasts and that, I like preparing it like that. And, and if I do give meat away to people, I give it to them in steaks. So all they have to do is put it to a pan or put it onto a barbecue. <laughs> I never give the whole egg because sometimes they throw the whole egg in the freezer and freeze the whole egg up and it hasn't been broken down. And they haven't, you know, say for example, like a venison, you can get steaks all out of thing. And then they see this big huge block in the freezer and they don't end up using it yeah maybe because they don't know what to do with it or they don't know what to do with it so Mm. nine times out of ten i'll if it's going to a tangi or a hui at a marae they have the whole animal they know they they know it's going to get used up straight away but if i'm giving it to someone who doesn't hunt in it i'll give it to them in the steak form so all they got to do is just cook it yeah, because that must be, you know, your, you know, do you think, okay, before I hand over, you know, this this meat, you know, you, you trust that it won't be wasted, yeah. eh? Well, I pack it, I even pack it for them, and I label it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's me. You're like a mobile butcher. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I pack it and label it. Um, funny you say that, I've got a whole pig sitting in the back of my truck at the moment that I since cleaned last <laughs> night, and I'm taking to a butcher to get it pickled. Pickled pork, so I've got a whole pork in the... Oh, <laughs> do you must have had a good New Year's and Christmas, say, with all the clay? Oh. <laughs> If I told you now, you'd probably get hungry. Uh, yeah, salivate. I mean, uh, yeah, from from kaura to pau to kina to pork to deer. 
Kia ora, Pete Piazzi. We'll hear more from him in next week's show. I'm Maria Rakuraku. And I'm Justin Murray. And for photos of our guests on today's show, you can head to radionz.co.nz forward slash tiahika, where our web team, Helena Dempsey and Richard, do a wicked job. Mariah, have you read Robinson Crusoe? I have. Basically, a man's shipwrecked on an island for 36 years, and we follow this adventure until he's rescued. And one of the encounters he has is with cannibals. Now, there's nothing like that term to get people freaking out. As you're about to hear in our review segment, Te Wete Wete. I'm talking with Tamari Toe from the History Department at Canterbury University in Christchurch, and we're reviewing Paul Moon's 2008 publication, This Horrid Practice The Myth and Reality of Traditional Māori Cannibalism. Now, if that's not a loaded title, I don't know what is, Tamari. It's a loaded title. It's, it's a it's an odd book. I've enjoyed quite a few of Paul's publications, but this one seems odd. It's just not in line with his other publications. And he's had some, I think, quite interesting ones. Yeah, what do you mean about it being an odd book? Well, it's a... It's a um, the question that you'd have to ask is why write it when it's generally acknowledged that there was cannibalism, you know, among Māori. But... Um, I guess it's an odd book because of his conclusion and his attempt to explain cannibalism. And really his, his explanation seems to be based on a, um, a writer called Clancy McKenzie, I think. And um, his explanation is essentially that Māori society was so violent that it's... Um, the DNA of the people were, you know, was awash with, with violence and fear. And that his explanation for it is that because of this traumatic experience from childhood and being taken away from the mother's breast, that this eventually, in decades to come, results in cannibalism. Which is an odd argument because really it's nothing new since Freud. You know, it's Freud's Oedipal argument that we've done away with for a long time now. But that seems to be his argument that because Marty weren't breastfed, you've got cannibalism. But I, I, I really don't understand it because, of course, Māori didn't have a bottle and, you know, the whole practice of, of, of um, you know, kai kai waiu, you know, mothers being breastfed by the community. It's just such an odd argument. It, Māori <laughs> didn't have the bottle. They were breastfed, but even taking that into account, it's still an odd argument to put forward. Basically, what we're looking at are historical accounts of cannibalism that took place when Māori first started encountering Europeans, because what he says at the front of the book is that he's relied on those primary sources and secondary sources to strengthen the accounts of cannibalism that were recorded near her. Well, it's, it's a mood argument, because he doesn't have to. We know cannibalism existed. What he's trying to do essentially, it's largely a political argument where he's taking on a scholar, I think, called Gananath Abayaskeri. I hope I've pronounced his name right. And what's motivating Paul, I think, is the politics of the argument. Now, he can go through all these material, but his material is essentially Western, white Western assessments of cannibalism. Now, you can go through any amount of material, the, the point's going to be the same. There's cannibalism there. But you know, you have to take a, a critical assessment of all these stories about cannibalism. No one's denying it, but I think Paul finds he wants to explain it. He thinks this practice needs ex explanation. You know, instead of looking in you know the backyard of the Western world, where you know there's genocide, uh, concentration camps, untold forms of torture in medieval society, he doesn't want to deal with that. He deals with our um, particular practice and he um, uh, he goes through the material but it's not Māori material, it's largely Western material and it's a t particular type of primary material, it's white Western primary material, there, there's actually no Māori accounts 
primary sources. He does argue on it, though, eh, that um, the records that he was going through, they were looking at things in their own cultural lens as well, eh? So from, the, he, from the Western world, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, I mean, he does argue that through the book, that, you know, these are people who are looking at the world in a particular way. Oh, and there's a whole series of arguments running through it, but I can't see the point in it when there is no argument. <laughs> there is no argument about cannibalism. The fact is it occurred. And I think what he's doing is... He's trying to add something new. And, of course, he's taking on the scholars. Ganeth Abayaskeri, Ganeth Abayaskeri, essentially argued that there was no such thing as cannibalism. And his argument is that... Um, <clears throat> You know, the, the examples we have from Western absor- observers are culturally suspicious. So that um, when Cook's men gave Māori, you know, a thigh bone and, and body part to eat, that Māori were eating it out of respect for Cook because they're being given food, right? Now, that's a cultural argument from Abayaskeri. I don't think it's right. <laughs> we, we just know there's too much examples of cannibalism. But that's what Paul's trying to do. He's actually not trying to deal with the fact. He's trying to have a political argument with a Basgari, I assume. Right? And so he gets himself into an all, all types of arguments with it. But, you know, I mean, if we go through the... The fascinating thing, if you go through these manuscripts now and you look at Captain Cook's men, and we're meant to be neutral observers, you know, in the future now from the past... So we're looking at these manuscripts. What we've got are Cook's men actively giving Māori um, body parts to eat. You know, you get the whole manuscript there, they're giving them a thigh bone and all the rest of it. But, you know, if you really stand back from it today, what does that tell you about all of the characters in this event? You know, you've got someone eating the corpse and you've got someone giving them the corpse. Now, these white characters early British explorers are actively giving Māori corpses to eat. If this was in any other society today and we we're watching it, I mean, what would you conclude with that? But Māori weren't passive, though. No, they're not passive. That's the point. Yeah. But what is, if you take a neutral... My, my view is, if you take a neutral position of it now and watch Cook's men and you watch Māori, they're all participating in, in, in an event. It's like some kind of theatre, eh? It's a theatre, I mean, mm. and you watch it. I mean, Cook's men are actively judging Māori for eating this corpse. But you've got to ask yourself the position, who's giving them the corpse to eat? What does that tell you about Cook's men? You know, that they actually taken a corpse and given it to someone? <laughs> it tells you something about the white observers at this time as well. So what about the accounts of cannibalism that occurred between Māori, Māori well, and Well, there's Māori. a lot of accounts of that. Mm. What, what the great pity is, of course, is that Paul doesn't go through that. But I guess, you know, I mean, there's no argument. And that's the oddity of this book because, um, you know, there's no, no argument. Well, I think where he, he tries, I think where he contributes a couple of things is he criticises the orthodox Māori explanation for cannibalism. Which was that it was a thing around mana. It was about ritual. Now, the, the, I, you know, we know the explanation for cannibalism is really about mana and removing the tapu of the, you know, the, the rangatira and the ariki eaten. It's the ultimate removal of mana and tapu. That really goes back to the stories of Rangi and Papa and Tumatuing and Tari. What Moon questions is, is that an adequate explanation? Because he gives some good examples where there's just random wanton violence going on. You know, he looks at the situation down south um, where these, you know, a woman killed. She wasn't an enemy of anyone. Her mana and tapu wasn't great. But there's, a, there's, a, there's an act of violence that needs to be, you know, she's eaten. Well, what threat is she? Her mana and tapu is not significant enough to warrant that. In a traditional explanation, that's what he's saying. The situation in Canterbury where my great-great-grandmother was dug up, you know, she was three weeks in the ground, um, by the, the northern invaders at Cowboy Park and Eton. Now, what's the, to some extent, that's a that's a, a statement of of mana, but she's no threat to anyone. All right. 
So his argument is, and what his criticism is of the orthodox argument is, um, it's not enough. These are really simply random acts of violence. And I think it's a good argument. What what he's saying is that they were calculated acts. Well, they're calculated and, and not calculated. They're just random acts of violence. And he's saying that means these orthodox explanations by Māori of removing the mana and tapu aren't sufficient enough. And I think he's got a point by the 1830s, 1820s, 30s. You know, there's a lot of musket wars going on. Corpses are mounting up and there's, you know, more corpses than you can eat. <laughs> and um, it's not enough. But his argument's not enough. And, um, you know, to say it's because Māori were breastfed, I'm not sure that's enough. You know, they weren't here he is. Mackenzie argues a child following weaning from the breast experiences separation anxiety and fantasizes about devouring the mother. A person who has experienced this may regress back to the stage in adulthood due to stress or trauma and lead the individual to seek out fulfillment that he has been denied by resorting to cannibalism. But of course, that's a, it's, it's a ridiculous argument. And it's about there you really do have to pick your jaw off the floor. <laughs> Because it's just, it's he didn't need to go there. I don't think he need to go. I didn't, don't think he needed to go there at all. Because he's really gone back to Freud and the Oedipal complex and all that type of thing. You know, the fixation with the breast, which simply couldn't have existed in Māori society. All mothers raised a child in the in the community, as you know. Kia ora te mai He'll be back again later in the year with more book reviews. And they are Pete Petsy, Mete Fakatoki. Kia ora, ko matafaura te maunga, ko kaituna te awa, ko pārua haranui te marae, ko ngāti pikiao me te ate haunui a pāparangi ngā iwi. Mauri kai, mauri ora. Ko pira peti tōku ingoa. Ngāti whātua ki kaipara Naitahu Angela Wallace is the public face of the current quit smoking television campaign. Next week, hear how she's getting on. E te iwi, kua tai anō ki te kapina a te ahikā. Katsuku mihi ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, ki ngā kai whakahaere mihini, ngā mihi. Hoki mai hei te rātū rātapu. Mauri ora tātou katoa. katoa.